I don't know how uh, familiar you are with that passage. 1 Samuel chapter 7 isn't really the the sort of passage that we would be going to regularly, uh, if we're honest. But um, whether you know much about it or not, I I certainly didn't. Um, I've been... uh, Something has been put on my heart uh, today, and it's all been to do with this, as Eric has identified, this subject of remembering. Remembering uh, God's goodness. God's goodness to us. Hence the title of the sermon. And, uh, and also, I was struck by what really is quite a, a funny name, I thought. It may have struck you as, uh, as funny uh, as well. As a boy, I was, uh, you may remember me saying this, I grew up in a brethren assembly. And uh, this word, Ebenezer, would, would crop up um, semi-regularly. People, when they prayed, they, um, they, would, they would say they were re- raising an Ebenezer. Well, I was quite young, and it, um, it struck me as strange, but then the brethren said a lot of strange things uh, at that time. It wasn't long, of course, before reading. I then came across Dickens's um, Christmas Carol and the character of Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> An unfortunate uh, crossover there. But, um, and then in adult years, as I uh, traveled more and, um, and discovered more, more and more churches, I discovered that some of the churches were called Ebenezer, Ebenezer Chapel. There was obviously something uh, in this word, and I hadn't come across the, uh, the passage that we have, uh, that we have studied uh, and had read to us by Steve. And that song, the last hymn that we played on the organ, special request from me, because the music tune has a name, and you can imagine that name is Ebenezer. Good Welsh tune. Anyway, I thought this morning then we'd look at the first Ebenezer, the one that uh, led to all of these, the stone of help, it means, a stone of help, and consider the importance of remembering the goodness of God. Now, the story comes at a rather obscure, as I say, you probably haven't read this passage, a rather obscure uh, point during the history of Israel, and so the chances are that, that you've probably never come across the word Ebenezer either, so I'm hoping that you'll bear with me as I just set it in context, um, a whistle-stop tour perhaps of the run-up to this particular passage. Let's start, shall we, with what we know. From last week, Eric told us about these patriarchs, and especially the father of the Jews, Abraham, and how he very nearly sacrificed his son, Isaac. And then, of course, Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob, also called Israel, had 12 sons, including one of the brothers being Joseph. And you'll remember about the brothers wanting to get rid of the irksome brother Joseph, and so they sold him into slavery down in Egypt, but eventually he rose to power under the favor of the Pharaoh, and the boys had to come, their tail between their legs, down to Egypt in order to get food. And their descendants then stayed on in Egypt, and they became a numerically quite significant uh, ethnic minority inside Egypt, growing and growing as a, as a community. You're with me so far. And then you'll remember the Exodus, second book of the Bible. You'll be fairly familiar. This is still familiar ground. But a later pharaoh comes to power, a, a pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And so the debt of gratitude that he had to Joseph, that's long gone. And instead, the children of Israel are enslaved. And they have a difficult time. And so God raises up a man called 
Moses, thank you, some of you have been to Sunday school, who organizes a mass migration of the whole of the Israelite people out of Egypt and up the coast towards a land of Can- the land of Canaan, a land that was being dubbed the promised land. There is a nice um, direct coastal route, I'll show you a map in a minute, and they could have taken it, but things don't turn out that way. Let me show you that map. You see, the Israelites, to put it mildly, don't behave as they should. And despite God having miraculously led them through the Red Sea and going ahead of them, leading the way in a pillar of cloud, you'll remember all of these details, they show no gratitude to God for this liberation. And indeed, they're soon grumbling, they're soon engaging in sinful conduct, and they are worshipping other gods. And so God decides to take them the long route. You've got the map there to show you. Goes through the desert, down to the Mount Sinai, and Mount Sinai is where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, and then they carry on, wandering through. And having wandered some 40 years in the wilderness, and with therefore a whole generation passing away, it's only the children of those original emigrants who carry on and reach at the top of the map the outskirts of Canaan. Let me pause briefly. We do have stories from the Old Testament. Erica illustrated how to do it last week. And there's, there is something in the back of, of my mind, certainly, when I was growing up. Why do we have the Old Testament if we are New Testament Christians? Shouldn't we simply be studying as a unique study Jesus, the life of Jesus, and indeed the teachings of the New Testament apostles? What is the value to us of an Old Testament? It's a bygone era, isn't it? Some of us would even uh, fall prey to the idea that this was somehow a, a different God. And it wasn't. These stories, they're not just for Sunday school children. Paul would certainly disagree uh, with that. He would say that the stories of God's former people, Israel, well, they're useful for us, the New Testament people of God. We can learn from them. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, the New Testament church, frankly a church that was not really as good as it ought to have been. It could have upped its game. And Paul says this, I do not want you. There were many Jews in the Corinthian church. I do not want you, he says, to be ignorant that our ancestors, this is the Israelites he's talking about, our ancestors were all under the cloud, you remember the pillar of cloud that led them through the the wilderness, and that they all passed through the sea. This is the journey across the, uh, the Red Sea. They, uh, but nevertheless. Now those dots suggest some words are missing. I'm speeding up as best I can. But things didn't go right. And despite God being so generous and so miraculously saving of his people, nevertheless God was not pleased with most of them. Paul encourages then uh, the many Jews in the Corinthian church to remember, to remember their ancestors. It should serve as a lesson. And he goes on. Don't be idolaters, as some of them were. And we should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. 
And do not grumble as some of them did. Now the dots in this case omit the things that happened to the Israelites because of their poor behavior, sin, not to say. And these things, says Paul, these things happened to them as examples. And they were written down as warnings for us. Does the Old Testament have value? You bet it does. In some ways, it's a very negative example, but these are things that tell us of the nature of God, the same Father God that, uh, that you and I have and claim uh, our familyhood in. Our Father is the same Father of the Israelites, and we do well to find out more, don't we? If we wish to find out more about the Father, we look to Jesus. Yes, we do. He reveals the Father to us, but to learn still more, let's go to the pages, the many pages of the Old Testament and find details, greater insight into uh, our Father. It should not be a closed book to us. Anyway, back to the story. The Israelites then are now on the point of entering Canaan, the promised land. And this is where the ark comes in. It has various names, the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, and, and so on, the Ark. Um, incidentally, those of you who have seen the Indiana Jones film, The Raiders of the Lost Ark, I would like you just to park that somewhere else, if you wouldn't mind. Um, you can come back to it and enjoy the entertainment, the fictitious entertainment. There was nothing mysterious and magical about the box. This is all it was. The ark really means a box, a chest. And inside that chest were the, you remember, Mount Sinai was when Moses was given the Ten Commandments. They were in there. And it was just for ease of carrying, that was what it had. You see the long poles and that uh, ark, the chest, was carried with them. Um, but having said that, it was of huge value to the Israelites because it served as the symbol of the presence of God, symbolically. It served as the symbol of his presence traveling alongside them, leading them, being with them as they journeyed to their new land. And it comes in useful, the ark, at this point in the story. The Israelites have just come up, um, uh, up against a major obstacle as they seek to enter the promised land, the river Jordan. It stands between them, and the River Jordan is in full flood. It comes and goes, as those of you who have been to the Holy Land will know. It comes and goes, but it was in full flood, and there was no way that, and I don't know the number, but some say it could be a, a million people were going to get over uh, a huge river like that. So what happens? Well, here's what happens. Joshua is the book we've now moved into, you can see. We read, as soon as the priests who were carrying the ark reached the Jordan, the water from upstream stopped flowing, and the water flowing down to the Dead Sea was completely cut off. The priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. The presence of God, as symbolized by the ark, has helped the Israelites set foot in the land of Canaan, but now the real 
struggle begins. You see, there are people living in Canaan already, fairly obviously. And the Israelites are going to have to fight them if they are to become the new inhabitants of Canaan. And therefore, they take the ark into battle with them. They want God to be there at their side. And indeed, with God's help, they steadily work their way into the promised land. You see the map with its two arrows. Having gone through Jericho, you'll remember that Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. The ark was there and was helping him and the Israelites to gain that victory and that access to the promised land. And this illustrates, by the way, uh, another reason for us wanting to get into the Old Testament, even though we're New Testament Christians, and that's this, that there's a sort of parallel that's going on. We have here a journey that's taking place, and we can say that we're on a similar journey. By faith in Jesus, we start out in our journey, we turn our backs on our Egypt, our former land of, uh, of slavery and sin, and we begin a new life, don't we? Sometimes wandering, sometimes struggling to find sure footing along the Christian pathway. It can feel like being in that wilderness. Do you see the parallels? But we, like the Israelites, are now in a new place, a new life with new prospects. And just as the Israelites went, as it were, through the waters of the river Jordan, so also we often, at the beginning of our Christian life, we will pass through the waters of baptism to signify that this journey is underway and we've moved to a new place. You see the parallels, I hope. And then it was the job of Joshua, once the land had been uh, conquered, to divide up, parcel up the land of Canaan into different areas. You'll recognize the names, I hope, because these are all the names of Joseph's brothers. They are the tribes, the families of Israel. And so they are allocated certain areas, certain portions of this new territory. But there's an unmarked territory. Can you see it down the bottom? The bottom left, the southwest, is an unmarked territory. Why didn't they occupy that? Well, that area is the area of the Philistines. And the Philistines remained the undefeated enemy of Israel. And they are fearsome warriors. And they're not going to give up their territory to these Israelite invaders without a significant fight. Now, you'll know a Sunday school story, this is where you come back in, about a Philistine giant who, his name, of course, uh, Goliath of Gath, and his story uh, is, it comes a little later in Israel's history. But you remember how he, the champion of the Philistines, he issues a challenge to the Israelites that there should be a one-on-one -on -one combat and the winner will decide the outcome of the, the battle. You remember who goes out to fight him? David. A little shepherd boy who, sling, who, uh, who uses his sling to kill 
the giant. Now, if you were taught this story as I was many times in Sunday school, you will doubtless have had the moral, the, uh, the lesson drawn out to you that if you have battles in life, if you've got things that you're worried about in life, think of yourself with the help of the Lord like a little David, and you will be able to fight, face down the giants if you will but trust Jesus. You know the sort of thing. But I think for us adults, the enemies of Israel do, they have another significance, perhaps, that we might also spot. And their equivalent in our life, I think, is to do with suffering and and, and sin, the trials that we go through, and the things that we don't do that we shouldn't and do that we should not. Sin, in particular, is like these uh, Philistines, they, uh, sin is an undefeated enemy for us. It's something against which we fight on a daily basis. It interferes and plagues our Christian life regularly. Now, we know, of course, that because of Jesus, the fact that we have faith in Jesus, our sins are completely forgiven, but we are never completely free, are we, from sin? There's always an undefeated enemy that is biting our ankles. And we also know that the times when temptation and trials come to us are when we are not walking as close to God as we should be. And it was just the same. In this period, after the death of Joshua, things went to pot. They're not as they should be things in the promised land. You read the book of Judges. Here's the book. It's the one that comes after Joshua. And you will see this phrase come up time and time again. In those days, Israel had no king. Not yet. Saul and David were later on down the story. No king. Everyone, now you would hope that everyone worshipped God in their own house. Everyone assembled every Sabbath to worship the God of their ancestors. Everyone, and it's different. No king, and everyone did as they saw fit. What a state of affairs. Incredibly, the, the Israelites who once knew the power of God to intervene miraculously for good in their lives, they've wandered far from him. And to make the situation worse, their army appears also to be disorganized and ineffective. And so we can easily uh, imagine, can't we, what's going to happen next. The Philistines are going to launch an attack. It's a good time for them to do so. And when they attack, the disobedient and disorganized Israelites panic. And in their desperation, they go to Shiloh, where the Ark of the Covenant was being housed, and they grab it. They take it to their battlefield, and they're trying to use it as a lucky charm, something that they hope will work. And you'll meet people today, you may be among them, of course, people who decorate their houses with these sorts of charms that reflect, they hope, uh, our God's presence. There'll be icons, there'll be statues, there will be crucifixes and all sorts. And although I'm going to suggest that it's absolutely fine to have them as decoration, don't treat them, will you, as lucky charms? Because they don't work. 
That's not how God's presence, God's protective presence works. We have to look inside with us inside our lives if we genuinely want that effect. But let's get back to the Israelites. The technique of bringing the ark as a lucky charm did not work. They brought it from Shiloh. You can see the map. It goes to the the place of battle and they lose. They're defeated by the Philistines who then capture the ark. The symbol of God's presence has gone. It couldn't get any worse. They've got no leader. They've got no functioning government. And it's now as if they have no God either. And you can see the obvious, can't you? You know where I'm going with this now. The comparison with our lives. There will be times when you and I know what it feels like. It's only an imagination to have God at a distance. Where is God when it hurts? Where is that ark of the Lord? And it's with the Philistines. But the good news, of course, is that God will not be absent for long. And the ark doesn't stay in Philistine hands. You can see that it gets moved around because it's really hot property, a bit like a hot potato. The Philistines don't know what to do with it. Whoever looks after the ark, bad things start to happen to, uh, to him. And so they say, listen, Israelites, you can have it back. And it's returned to Israel with great rejoicing. Now they've turned their backs on God for too long. They're doing their own thing. Ignoring his laws, it's time, they think, to change. And so we read, we read this morning, Steve read it, uh, thank you Steve for that. Then, all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. The older versions of the NIV have a different wording, but this is what it is. All the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. I read it as something of a light bulb moment. They suddenly wake up to the reality of what they should be doing. In those dark and uncertain times, something has dawned. The penny has dropped. The Israelites, who have forgotten the goodness of God, who have forgotten his goodness in bringing them out of Egypt, out of slavery, giving them a new land, new prospects, and so on, they've turned their back on him. But perhaps it's time, they think, to have a rethink. Maybe that might work if they change their ideas a little bit. Now, Samuel was a wise prophet, and he recognizes that this change of heart may not particularly be a sincere one. And he says to the Israelites, well, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then do this. Rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and Commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Samuel knows, you see, that the word sorry, you tell this to your children, don't you? The word sorry is easy to say, and it's much harder to mean. We know the truth of this. And when we come before God and we repent, when we confess our sins, how true is it then of you and me? that we are just going through the motions, that we are repeating words that someone else may have written for us. Our Anglican friends have a liturgy and they recite it week by week. Do you have yours? 
As we prayed with Eric earlier on, we, we use the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins, our trespasses. Do we go through the spoken remorse? But are words really enough? Of course they're not. These words of Samuel are a challenge then to us as well. Rid yourselves. This is how you judge your sincerity. Rid yourselves of foreign gods. If we are serious about wanting to win our battles, we may well have to get rid of things. Do you know, it was the Puritans. They're not easy to read, uh, the Puritans. But they spoke of a long word, and it was mortification. The mortification of sin. The putting to death of those things we should not be doing. I wonder, do you think we're past that? That was the Puritan era. We're more modern. We're, we're better than that. We're above that. We're good people. We're not really sinful, are we? Really? Someone once said, sin is not totally annihilated at conversion. And it's true. The war goes on. Maybe we should be looking more closely, more in depth at where we are and how better still we can be. How much more remaining sin can be eliminated from our lives? We, we know how David uh, called upon God in the Psalms and he said, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and just see if there is an offensive way in me. You try diagnosing yourself, you won't come up necessarily with the same conclusion. Test me, O oh God. Anyway, Samuel has not finished ensuring that the Israelites are genuine in their repentance. He calls them to Mizpah, a mustering point, and he gives them instructions about what they are to do, doing something concrete, which will clearly show their intentions. And wisely, they follow his instructions. You can read for yourself, so I'm going to paraphrase. They poured out water which is in short supply, as you may know, in the Middle East. They fasted, and food was never abundant. They didn't have a luxurious diet. They fasted, something else that they gave up that was in short supply and had a high premium on. And they sacrificed. And I'll bet that Samuel did not bring from his own flock that animal to be sacrificed. It was something that the Israelites, doubtless, had to provide themselves, something they had to give up. Giving up things that are precious to us. It's not so difficult today. Water, we can live without it. Food, we can live without it. We know it's always going to be there at the turn of a tap. Visit to the supermarket. So fasting and pouring out water... Not so significant. What is it then that today we might cling onto and say, no, 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 this is mine? Is it money? Come on, we're not all that badly off in our society with the welfare state. It's not even money. Can I suggest? You think about it for yourself. Of course, it's your own judgment that's, that's important here, but things that are important to me, and I suggest to you that it is time. Time is mine. I do begrudge at times having to do things which stop me doing the fun things in life, the things that bring me joy. And I make 
a decision, well, I'm just going to have to get on with it. What about you? Is time something that you only want for yourself? Would it not be something which we should be thinking, I ought to be giving a little bit more to God and not clinging on to so much myself? Anyway, you know the rest. You know how the story finishes. The Philistine onslaught is dealt with more by God than the Israelite warriors. And it seems then that this rest, which the Israelites and the land of Israel had from Philistine aggression, is a fairly enduring one. It lasts. As long as Samuel was alive, they were safe. So the end of the story, we know how it ends. In acknowledgement of God's goodness to the Israelites in freeing them from the tyranny of the Philistine assault, Samuel takes a stone, sets it up, and names it Ebenezer, meaning in Hebrew, a stone of help. And his words as he did so, thus far, so far, God has helped us. This would then stand as a a memorial stone smack in the the middle of the land where the problems were and it would remind the Israelites that it wasn't through their cunning and skill and uh, warrior-like conduct that they had won victory over the Philistines. It was God who had helped them come to this place. And we do well, perhaps, to erect our own memorials don't we? To God's goodness, because we are surely, we talked about memory, we are surely prone to forget. I know my forgettery is making progress these days. We take certain things for granted. We might even feel that when things are going well in our lives, well, we can be quite proud. Well, thank goodness, you know, I've worked hard for this. Jolly well should be a a good time in my life. I can retire as, as currently I am. You know, now on the, that's the fruit of my, that's the reward for the things that I have worked on. We forget that God is good to us and he is the root of the reason why our lives go well. It's rather old-fashioned to hear preachers, so I shan't do it, but they used to exhort us to count our blessings. You remember? But an occasional stock check is no bad thing. How often then do you raise your Ebenezer? How frequently do we recognize the good hand of God, the helping hand of God in our lives? Do you know, it was an irony. This is a quote from Lamentations. Lamentations, the book written by the depressive prophet Jeremiah. How ironic then that he should remind us that new every morning, every morning, God's mercies to us are new. We'd keep, we would struggle to keep that level, that pace, that frequency of gratitude up, wouldn't we? I know I would. Because the reality is when things turn out right for us, when things that might have gone badly go well and we breathe a sigh of relief, we just assume that we've been f- fortunate or we've been worse still lucky. We really need to stop taking the goodness of God for granted. We need to make an effort to acknowledge that what's going right in our lives is because of him. And we 
owe it to him to raise an Ebenezer, to be more openly acknowledging of his good hand upon us and uh, on our lives. As the hymn writer said, how good is the God we adore. I've been to many churches and met with many other Christians over the course of my life, but I continue to be impressed, ashamed in many ways, as to when in an ordinary conversation, they're not up in the pulpit, but in an ordinary conversation, they will talk about things that have happened in their lives, and they will not say that they were fortunate, that things went well, and they're glad that it's all good. God has helped me. God was faithful. The Lord had his hand on the situation. Have you met these people? Because I don't know about you, but I need to up my game. This is the example of people who raise their Ebenezers, who say, it's the Lord who has helped me. God was behind it, being good to me, and it needs to be said that way. Let's count our blessings then, shall we, as a a previous generation used to sing. Let's make every effort to remember when God is good. Oh, and I nearly forgot. Some of you will know what that flower is. It's a forget-me-not. A forget-me-not. May we not then be guilty of walking out of this place and the first thing that we do to forget God and his goodness until we come back in next Sunday. Instead, let's make that effort to go into this week remembering God's goodness. Amen.